go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 15. chapter 15, and we're going to be looking this morning at verses 15 through 32. Hopefully each of you had a Merry Christmas. <clears throat> you know, I uh, definitely don't consider myself to be uh, very cultured uh, when it comes to like art and movies and music. Um, I've never watched any of the Marvel movies I've never watched any of the Star Wars movies. Uh, I've never watched any of the Matrix movies. Um, I don't know any painters. I don't know any artists. Um, it, unless it's um, 90s or 2000s uh, Southern trap music, I don't know music very well. Um, so I'm not very cultured. But I do know that there was a guy by the name of Rembrandt, and, and he was a painter. And you may have heard of Rembrandt before. And the only reason I'm familiar with him is because he painted um, he painted pictures depicting scenes out of the Bible. I, I know he's pretty famous for um, he, he he created a portrait of um, the uh, I'm going right now. Um, I, I know he created a, a portrait of like David and Goliath, that battle, the prodigal son. Um, he, he's, he's well known for that one, but, but he's mostly known for uh, this passage that we're going to be looking at today with Jesus and uh, the thieves on the cross. And it's called the Three Crosses. Um, and what's interesting about uh, this picture that he paints depict, depicting uh, the, the passage that we're going to look at today is he includes himself in the painting. Like, if you don't look at the picture now, because you just be on the comments. But uh, if, if, if you look at the picture, there's like this figure in the shadow, and that's him. And what he's saying by including himself in that picture is that uh, Jesus died on the cross for his sins, right? That Jesus died on the cross for his rebellion, that it was his sin that put um, Jesus on the cross. So Rembrandt really captures in this portrait um, um, what we read just a minute ago um, when Tyler read from Isaiah chapter 53 that he was pierced because of our rebellion, right? That he was crushed because of our iniquities, right? Our sin, my sin, your sin. And I think Rembrandt really got it right uh, with that picture. And, and therefore, in a sense, we are responsible for his death. And I think it's interesting that we just celebrated the birth of Jesus, right, a couple days ago in this building. Uh, and now we're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. It lets us know that, hey, this wasn't no feel-good story, right? Don't get too fuzzy on it, right? Jesus came uh, on a mission of, of service and redemption and restoration and to destroy the devil and the works of the devil and to save us from God's wrath and from hell and our sin. That, you know, so we can't get caught up in the manger for too long. That's right. right? So that, that's why Martin Luther, he said, we all carry about in our pockets his very nails. Right? Because because we, we, we put Jesus on that cross. Last week we looked at the previous passage, uh, Jesus' trial before Pontius Pilate. In that account, we saw the various characters um, that were involved in Jesus' execution. Um, 
Pontius Pilate, the religious leaders, the crowd, and Barabbas. And like Rembrandt, uh, we can see ourselves in each of those characters that we really think about. All right? Uh, because each of us shares characteristics with each of those characters if we really look at them closely. Like Pilate, we often value our reputation over Jesus. We desire to be approved by others. And, and this desire for others' acceptance oftentimes can control us. We are more concerned about pleasing the crowd a lot of times than we are about uh, pleasing the Lord. And like the religious leaders, we often elevate our agenda above Jesus' agenda. Uh, we kind of want Jesus to sort of back off a lot of the times, to, to just kind of get out of our life sometimes, to give us a little bit more elbow room so we can kind of do what we really want to do because we don't like Jesus encroaching in on what we are doing. We don't like his authority. We have the same self-righteous tendencies as the religious leaders a lot of the times, don't we? And like the crowd, we often reject Jesus in favor of other things, right? In our hearts, for sure. I don't know about you. I, I don't know if it's true of you. It's true of me. Our desires and our decisions reveal that you and I, we can be just little idolaters a lot of the times. We love to replace the lovely one with things that are less lovely, right? We love to replace the lovely one with, with things that are less lovely. And uh, except for the grace of God, you and I, we would be plotting, we would be planning, we would be cheering uh, right along for the death of Jesus with this crowd. Right. Well, we're just as simple as these characters, and uh, we have just as much of a need for a Savior as they do. So there's no need in us for, to really look down on those people. Uh, the good news is that the Holy Spirit is now shifting our gaze away from looking at ourselves uh, to look at Jesus. So if you've received Jesus, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is really working on you, and he is shifting your focus towards Jesus, away from yourself. It's always helpful to do some self-examination, uh, but it's dangerous to stay there. Uh, we have to listen to uh, this guy, Robert Murray uh, McCain. I like what he said. He said, uh, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Jesus. So we don't want to just dwell on how simple we are. We need to recognize it. Uh, but many of us need to also remember that we need to be looking at Jesus, right? Um, you need to look at yourself. Um, a lot of us will look at ourselves ten times and only look at Jesus maybe once. You know, maybe on Sunday, right? So for every look at self, just remember this: take ten looks at Jesus, and that's what we're going to do today. We want to take several long looks at our Savior who died a painful and shameful death for us. And it was for us, by the way. So let's read uh, Mark chapter fifteen, verses. 15-32. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I'm actually going to call it flogged for the rest of the day. Alright, instead of scourged. Verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. 
and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down and homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a school. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for him to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we just ask for your help this morning. We ask that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is true. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is um, it's the first of two parts describing Jesus' crucifixion. We'll look at the second part next week. Uh, but the main theme that is running through this section of Scripture is Jesus' humiliation. Uh, that's the main idea. So there are four groups involved with humiliating Jesus. Uh, the soldiers ridicule him. Uh, we see that in verses 16 through 20. Uh, those passing by hurl insults at him. Uh, we see that in verse 29. The religious establishment, uh, they ignorantly mock Jesus. Uh, we see that in verse 31. And even these, uh, even those crucified along Jesus taunt and deride him. And we see that in verse 32. Additionally, the crucifixion, you know, we talked about it before. It was the most horrific way to die. Not only because it was excruciating, but because it was also very humiliating. Um, the two most accurate words to describe the crucifixion, in my opinion, are one, painful, and two, shameful. This is why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that he, talking about the Son of God, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and not just any old death, but what? Even to death on the cross. Right? Death by crucifixion is an act of absolute, total, and utter humiliation. Uh, we'll talk about some of the details here shortly. So here's the main idea in a sentence. Even in his humiliation, Jesus' unique identity and divine mission are ironically displayed. Alright, so Jesus' unique identity and divine mission are ironically displayed, even in his humiliation. 
one of the consistent themes that we have seen in Mark's gospel is there are numerous ironic reversals. Right? Jesus takes what the world values most and he turns it completely upside down. He flips it on top of its head. The kingdom of God is a paradoxical kingdom, isn't it? It's a backwards kingdom. It's a bizarre kingdom. Um, we, the world, we think that greatness is achieved by getting other people to serve us. But that, that, that's what the world tells us, right? If you got people that love you and that will do things for you, the world tells you that, that, that you are great because of that. Uh, we believe that in order to have a fulfilling life, uh, that we must constantly take, right? That's kind of, that's one of the things that our culture promotes. Not saying that our entire culture is a disaster. Not saying that. Uh, but we must constantly receive. That's kind of what we're telling you, kind of how we feel. And what Jesus tells us is that true life, true life, uh, if you want a really full life, it's obtained by sacrifice. That, that a true life is secured by giving one's life away. We, we think that um, showing other people our weakness is a flaw. Right, something to be avoided. But Jesus says that according to his kingdom, your weakness, not your strength, is actually an asset. Right? The kingdom of God is an ironic, paradoxical kingdom. Additionally, throughout Jesus' trial, we have seen multiple ironies occur. And um, declaring that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy, the high priests are in fact guilty of blasphemy. Though the Sanhedrin sit in judgment of Jesus, Jesus will one day sit in judgment of them. Though the, the mockers believe Jesus is a fraud uh, because he won't predict who hit them, they are ignorant of the fact that Jesus has actually already prophesied and predicted his entire death in vivid detail. The rooster, an animal known for its foolish pride and its cocky attitude reminds Peter of his own foolish boast. Mark's gospel sets forth numerous ironic reversals and in this account of Jesus' crucifixion we're going to see a few more. So we're going to see three ironic declarations about the identity and the mission of Jesus and here's the first declaration. Jesus was mocked as the king of the Jews when he in fact was the Messiah. Jesus was mocked as the king of the Jews when he is, in fact, the Messiah. Mark tells us in verse 15 that before he was crucified, that Jesus was flogged. The ESV says scourged. I like flogged. Um, he's flogged by the Roman soldiers. Mark gives us uh, very little detail about this process, but history provides us with a description of this kind of event. Roman flogging was a horrifically cruel punishment. Uh, the Jews, they would limit, they would limit their floggings to 39 lashes, um, but or lashings, but the Romans, they had no such limitations. Their length was dependent only on the mood and the stamina of the soldier that was issuing the blows. These floggings were intended to shorten the duration of the crucifixion, but they were so violent that many men um, simply died due to blood loss during the process. The prisoner would be stripped naked of his clothes. His hands would be shackled above his head, and then he would be laid 
out so that his back and that his shoulder, uh, his shoulders and his legs were exposed. Soldiers would use a whip of braided leather straps, and at the end of each strap, they would have a heavy metal ball or, or, or a sharp metal hook or both. Um, so when the when the whip would strike, the metal balls would serve to tenderize the flesh. And simultaneously, these hooks, they would sink in to the body. The soldiers then would yank the whip and literally take the flesh off the man. This would take place for a significant amount of time. Then the prisoner would be flipped over to have the same thing done uh, to his front side. One medical physician who has studied Roman floggings that I read, he said, uh, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quiverings of bleeding flesh. First century historian Josephus recorded that some Galileans were flogged until their internal parts were visible. It's been recorded that some floggings were so violent and the hooks sank so deep that a man's ribs were literally snapped off of his body. Thankfully, uh, this, is, this is pretty impressive. Thankfully, women were exempted uh, from being flogged. Uh, they were exempted uh, from both the suffering and also witnessing. So they couldn't even witness these floggings, which I thought that was pretty cool. They, the, the, the brutality experienced by Jesus at this scene was actually pre-recorded for us in Isaiah chapter uh, 52, verse 14, which reads, His appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. Jesus was beaten and flogged so severely that he didn't even look like a man. So after his flogging and before his crucifixion, the whole company of Roman soldiers, about 500 to 600 of them, gathered around to mock Jesus as the king of the Jews. So they dressed him up in a purple robe, uh, which was the color of royalty. They twisted together and graced him with a crown of thorns. They provided him with a pseudo-scepter. Uh, that they eventually snatched out of his hands and used it to beat him over the head repeatedly. Uh, instead of giving him a royal kiss, which would have been a customary greeting uh, for all kings at that time, they spit in Jesus' face. <clears throat> they additionally ridiculed him uh, by falling on their knees and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. At this point, I think uh, we need to pause and we need to say, what's the, what's the point of this scene? Um, what are we to take away from this account? Well, there are, there are several points uh, that we can point out. One, this scene reveals to us uh, the depravity of humanity. Uh, don't be deceived by our culture. Like I said, there's many things that we can affirm in our culture. Uh, but don't be deceived uh, to thinking that we're just really good people, you know, just really awesome people. Uh, we're not. Uh, this scene depicts the depths of wickedness that resides in every human heart. Left unchecked and unrestrained by God, humans are capable of committing the vile sin. And praise be to God that um, he checks us and he restrains us so that we do see a lot of good in our culture. Mm -hmm. right. But this scene also reminds us that it wasn't just the Jews 
who were guilty against Jesus. The Gentiles are equally responsible. I think there's a good case to be made that the, that the Gentiles treated Jesus worse. But the bottom line is that both Jew and Gentile are both equally guilty before God. One's ethnicity does not help one's sinful condition. And, and this is Paul's point in Romans 3 when he says, um, what then? Are, are we Jews better off? Remember he says that? And, and you know, we could say the same thing. I don't know anybody in here that's, that's a, a Jew. Um, I'm assuming we're all Gentiles. Um, but, but we could say the same thing. Are we Gentiles uh, better off than the Jews? The answer to both questions is no, not at all. Our skin color may be different, but our hearts are the same. This scene also reiterates Jesus' unique identity as the Messiah. Interestingly and purposefully, Jesus is identified as the king of Israel on three occasions in this passage. You see it in verse 18, and they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. We see it again in verse 26, and the, this is kind of like the warrant of the arrest warrant against him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And we see it once more in verse 32. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross. And I think this is all intentional and theological irony. Jesus is repeatedly mocked as the king of the Jews. And yet, ironically, it's all accurate. This is how one commentator puts it. The soldiers, despite their intention, acknowledge in both word and deed Jesus' true identity. Even in rebellion against God, humanity still bears witness to God. Scripture has uh, predicted the Messiah wouldn't be a military hero, but rather that he would be a suffering servant that he would conquer his enemies not by the sword, but that he would conquer his enemies by his wounds. And Jesus' enemies are testifying to this reality, to this fact. They are mocking him as the king of the Jews when he is in fact the Messiah. That's, that, that's the first description. Here's a second ironic description. Jesus didn't destroy the temple, but his death rendered the temple obsolete. Jesus didn't destroy the temple, but his death rendered the temple obsolete. So after being flogged, Jesus was forced to carry his cross to the place of his execution. The cross didn't look like a lowercase t as it is commonly uh, depicted. Rather, Jesus was forced to carry the cross piece, which would later be attached to an upright stake which would be located permanently at the execution site. So this wooden crossbar was both rugged and heavy. Uh, the, the, most people think it weighed probably anywhere from 75 to 100 pounds, and it was so heavy that Jesus could not carry it. Mark doesn't tell us why, but it's most likely from all the blood loss and trauma that Jesus had just endured. So the soldiers force a man named Siren, and in this, or, I'm sorry, Simon, and this man is from Cyrene, Simon of Cyrene. And Cyrene is a city located in northern Africa at the time. They forced Simon to carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way to Golgotha, and Mark informs us in this seemingly out of peace, or not out of peace, out of place note, uh, Mark informs the reader that Simon 
was the father of two men, Alexander and Rufus. And now we don't exactly know who these individuals are, but we do know uh, that they were known to Mark's audience. That's why Mark included them in this account. And they were more than likely members of the Roman church. Paul actually mentions another Rufus in Romans chapter 16. Uh, we don't know if it's the same Rufus, but it probably is. And so we know that they were most likely members of the Roman church. And so when Jesus, when Jesus finally arrived at Calvary, uh, he was offered uh, wine mixed with um, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh. Uh, this drink kind of functioned as an anesthetic. It, it was an actual uh, it was an ancient painkiller, and it was actually a common practice for pious women in Jerusalem to give this drink to condemned men as an act of mercy. It, it helped to dull the excruciating pain one was about to experience on the cross. And what I find perplexing, and I was reading through this this week, uh, I don't know if you noticed it, but what sticks out to me is Jesus' response to this act of mercy. <clears throat> Verse 23, And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. He did not take it. Uh, why did Jesus refuse the drink? You, you know how much pain he was going through. Well, what's the most painful thing that you've ever experienced? I know for me, I have Thankfully, I haven't broken any bones or had any major injuries or accidents. But I'm just, I'm a very dramatic guy. I got most dramatic in my senior class um, as a superlative, as you can imagine if you know me. Uh, but I remember I was like in the sixth grade and I was on a photo stick, is that what they call Jumping up and down in my aunt's garage and the floor's concrete. And I was a huge kid, a big, about, about the same size as I am now. And I was jumping on that thing and I was going up. And then the next thing I know, I fly up and I land on my bottom. And you know, I'm dramatic. I'm an oversized 12 year old. I hit concrete and I just remember thinking I'm gonna die. Um, but I definitely couldn't get up in that moment or in my mind, I didn't think I could get up. So I know my aunt comes out there and she, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going crazy. I'm, I'm told to call 911. Uh, I, and I was like, do you have any medicine? Do you have anything I can take? You know, I'm hurting. You know, that's, that was my first thing. You know, we're, we're some, I'll, I'll take cough medicine in that moment. Um, anything. Uh, but I'll just think about, you know, just think about a time when you've been in just a severe amount of pain. Um, Jesus, he was in more pain than, than you've ever been. And he was offered a painkiller after his flogging and before the cross he refused Why? Well, Mark doesn't give us a, a ton of detail, but I think we can gather two reasons. One, because I don't think he wanted anything to cloud his mind in that moment. Now, don't get crazy on me. I'm not taking medicine and stuff. Uh, Jesus is on a mission that has been predestined before the foundation of the world, so he's on a specific mission here. Two, I don't think he wanted anything running his pain. Right. One author said, we should remember that even on the cross, Jesus was still on service and needed to be in full possession of his faculties. At any moment, an urgent need might arise. I thought that was interesting. As one of the two men crucified with him suddenly said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, instantly alert and instantly reassuring, said, today you will be with me in paradise. 
In the same way Jesus, in his dying moments, is equally concerned for his mother, commending to the care of John, the beloved disciple. He loved and he served till the end, and he needed to be so. Right, so you can kind of understand the point there that there may be that wine mixed with myrrh. I mean, how would have he responded to the robber? How would have he responded to his mother in those moments on earth? Uh, additionally, Jesus had to suffer fully in order to secure the salvation of his people. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, Jesus solemnly determined that to offer a sufficient atoning sacrifice, he must go the whole way. From the throne of highest glory to the cross of deepest woe, this myrrh cup with its numbing influence would have kept him within a little of the utmost misery, and therefore he refused it. He would not stop short of all he had undertaken to suffer for his people, to suffer for you. <clears throat> Mark's description of Jesus' crucifixion is, is remarkably brief. Um, he only uses three words both in the Greek and in the English, and those three words are they crucified him. Mark did not need to go into great detail about the crucifixion uh, because his audience would have been very familiar with it. And also because the main focus of Jesus' death was really not the physical sufferings, but rather the significance of his death. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail about the physical pain. You can read that elsewhere. But I do want to say this. The cross was designed not merely for execution purposes. It was designed to extract the maximum amount of physical pain from its victim. It was such an exceedingly torturous way to die that, that, that a word literally had to be invented to describe it. And that word is excruciating. I'm not sure if you knew that. Out of the cross, the word excruciating was formed. We have no other word in our vocabulary to describe how painful this is, so, so we, we had to make something up. Crucifixion was such a barbaric practice that it was reserved for only the worst criminals. Um, Roman citizens, uh, they were exempt from it unless they were convicted of high treason. So Roman citizens couldn't could even be crucified. Uh, this is what a first century Roman lawyer, uh, his name is Cicero, <clears throat> this is what he said about it. Decent Roman citizens shouldn't speak of the cross because it, because it is unfit for them to ponder that kind of murderous death. Uh, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from a person of, of, of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and even his ears. I read that uh, there was a court case in the first century uh, where two men, they got in a fight at a bar. Wouldn't be like a bar, we know, but um, their idea of a bar, two men got in a fight uh, because one man had insulted the other man by calling him, you crucified one. And that started a fight. You know, that's how lovely they looked upon the whole act and identity of it. So people in the first century, they viewed the cross as a vulgar curse word um, that shouldn't be used among civilized people. Recognizing this, I think, helps us understand better in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when Paul states, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Like, this is your Savior? This is your God? 
the, the guy who got crucified, you're going around and telling everyone he died on the cross? That's foolishness. That's a stumbling block. This is how one scholar describes the cross. He says, the Romans cross to use crucifixion as a criminal deterrent because executed publicly, situated at a major crossroad, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, and vicious ridicule. Which is, that's exactly what happened to Jesus in verse 29, which we read. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The phrase derided him, um, it's actually translated in the Greek as blasphemy. Uh, these people aren't just yelling insults, they are blaspheming Jesus, the divine Son of God. Full of irony here, uh, the one accused of blasphemy and thus crucified is now being blasphemed during his crucifixion. And what the pedestrians are provoking Jesus to do is ultimately uh, to vindicate, to defend himself. Uh, again, the irony is thick. But staying on the cross, Jesus is actually rendering the temple and all of its sacrifices obsolete. He is actually destroying the need for a temple by his death. Uh, just a few verses later, we will look at this next week. Mark tells us that after Jesus breathed his last breath, verse 38, what happened? What happened in verse 38? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the implications of this are so multifaceted, right? There is such good news for us. This means that the sacrificial system and the ceremonial laws no longer apply to us because the ultimate sacrifice has been made. It means that we can now eat pork. It means that now we can have BLTs. But it also means that when we sin, we don't have to slaughter an innocent lamb because the innocent lamb of God has already been sacrificed for us. And on top of this, access to God's holy presence is now available to horrible, wretched sinners like us. It's not just available to a few <clears throat> select priests. Now we have access to God's holy and unique presence that we enjoy now and that we will enjoy for all eternity. In addition to this, we can draw near to God with confidence and with boldness because the cross sufficiently handled our sin problem. We have been washed. We have been uh, cleansed. We have been purified. We have been declared clean by God because Jesus died for us. We have unlimited access to God. Not because of anything we have done, but only because Jesus refused to save himself from coming down from that cross. <clears throat> Final description, very briefly. Jesus could have saved himself, but he couldn't save himself and save us. Mm. All right? He could, he could have saved himself, but he couldn't have saved himself and saved us. Verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. The absence of a miracle in response 
uh, to their taunts is itself miraculous. Oh, oh, oh. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't respond like you or I would have? I would have jumped off the cross. Call down angels. Let's go. Let's throw down. I'll show you. You know, if, if, if he had acted like me, none of us would have salvation today. None of us. But Jesus, I mean, I, you know, I can't even handle somebody looking at me right now. I want to get all pulled up. Um, but, but, but Jesus had a few options. He did have options. He could have called down. Um, he could have summoned thousands of angels. Uh, angelic warriors uh, completely obliterated those around him. Every single person uh, involved with his resurrection, he could have struck them down in that moment. He did save others. He could have saved himself, but he could not save himself and us. And he chose us instead. Jesus didn't stay on the cross because of the nails. He remained on the cross because of his steadfast love for us. Instead of saving himself, he, himself, he chose to save us by dying the death that we deserve to die. He knew that if he came down from that cross, that we would not make it to God. But because our salvation is dependent upon his bloody and shameful death. So, so the cross of Christ not only shows the depth of our sin, but it also shows us the unfathomable, unfathomable love that Jesus has for us. J.C. Ryle says, this passage is one of those which shows us the infinite love of Christ towards sinners. Did you hear that? You uh, come in here this morning and, and you don't think that he loves you? He does. He loves you. He loves you a lot. He loves you infinitely. He loves you eternally. Paul says that the love of Christ surpasses all knowledge. And then he goes on to say that, that God shows us his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' kingdom, it's a backwards kingdom. And so is Jesus' kingship. But the kings of this world, they demand their people to lay down their lives for their own personal benefit. But, but, but Jesus, the Messiah, he sacrificially laid down his life for the benefit of his people. He took our shame so that we could get his glory. He took our guilt so that we could get his righteousness. He took our condemnation so that we could get his everlasting life. Jesus has done something that no other king has ever done. He has conquered what no other king has ever defeated. Through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, he has stripped death, he stripped hell and the devil of all of its power. He is a saving king. But here's the deal. He's a saving king only for those who would bow the knee to him and trust him. And I know many of you have done that. Maybe some of you have not. My encouragement to us all is that we would trust him so that we can take hold of his benefits of being a child of the king. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus, uh, that he has come into the world, that he has lived, that he has died, that he has raised and that he is coming back again. And we thank you that the Father and the Son, in the meantime, have sent the Spirit who lives in us and who is constantly shifting our gaze 
from the things of this world, uh, from sin, from death, and the devil who is constantly shifting our days from ourselves to Jesus. So I pray today that, that the Holy Spirit will continue in his work of shifting our days to take one look at ourselves and take ten looks at Jesus. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.